in your Bible to John chapter 7 for our study tonight. John chapter 7. Man, children's ministry is a happening place. Kids are loving Awana. It's fun to see all the kids light up as they come in to go into their uh, children's ministry uh, classes, especially the cubbies because they're three and four-year-olds. And it's like the first time that they get the vest and stuff and they're literally like, yeah, this is awesome. I can't, can't wait to be a part of this. And so if you have a heart to serve in children's ministry, there's a really neat calling that's there. So there's still opportunity to serve on Wednesday nights or on the weekends. And if you are being led in that direction, you can pick up a volunteer application at the info center. Also, men's and women's ministry are off to a great start. They started yesterday and and men's meet on Tuesday night, women Tuesday morning and Tuesday night and the equip classes as well. And if you still want to get plugged in in men and women's ministry, uh, you can do that. Some of the classes are closed, but there's still classes that are open and uh, you can get signed up and plug into those as well. So let's pray together and ask God to bless the time in, in the word. Father, we do thank you for what's taking place in children's ministry. Lord, just hundreds of kids over there tonight learning about you, memorizing your word. And we just pray blessing upon them, Lord, from the youngest, uh, Lord, up until middle school and high school. Lord, would you move in a powerful way? And would you also move in our lives tonight? May we come to you, Jesus, and experiencing you as our living water and how we need refreshment. So tonight, may we find that in you. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 7, the setting for these two chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8, is the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was at one week where the children of Israel would primarily look back at a time when they were in the wilderness. It was a giant camping trip. You'd get your family together, you'd dwell in a tent, and remember how your ancestors traveled through the wilderness before they came into the promised land. Now, if you are a tent camper, you can relate a little bit, can't you? There's just so many lessons to be learned in tent camping that can't be learned any other way. If you've never tried it, you live in one of the best states to do it. So this was what the Feast of Tabernacles was about. And they would be primarily focusing in on water and light, remembering how God had provided water for them in the wilderness and also how God provided light, the pillar of fire. And Jesus makes two profound statements that fit perfectly with the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, come to me and you'll experience living water. You'll experience the source of water that has no end. And then in chapter 8, we won't get there tonight, but you can read ahead. Jesus says that he's the light of the world. And if we don't understand the Feast of Tabernacles, and we don't understand all that's happening behind the scenes, we lack the depth of understanding in this chapter. If you're taking notes, there's three D's tonight that kind of break up this chapter. The first nine verses are before the feast and it's disbelief. Before the feast, disbelief. And then from verse 10 to verse 36, it's the midst of the feast and it's debate. There's a debate that's happening about Jesus Christ. And then from verse 37 to verse 52 is the last day of the feast, and there's division. There's disbelief, debate, and division that's taking place all around Jesus Christ. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 7. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Hey, that's a great reason to not walk somewhere, right? If you're really hated in a particular region uh, of the country, you tend to not go there. And Judea is Jerusalem. 
And Jesus is hated in Jerusalem primarily because he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. And they sought to kill Jesus after that point. So he spent the most of his time in Galilee, in Capernaum, in that region. In verse 2, now the Jews, Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. And that may take you a little bit by surprise, Jesus' brothers, it's talking about his half-brothers. After Mary and Joseph continued on in their marriage, they had more children. So maybe you thought that Mary stayed in a condition of perpetual virginity. That's not the case. That's not the teaching of scripture. Uh, After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph came to know a normal husband and wife relationship and Well, you know what happens. You have kids when you have a normal husband-wife relationship, right? And so here they are having kids, and Jesus now has these half-brothers. And these half—some of you look shocked. You're like, is that what happens? It's it's what happens. So, (laughs) But the half-brothers of Jesus, they come now to Christ, and they say, we want you to come to the Feast of Tabernacles so that your disciples— can see the signs and the miracles that you're doing, but we'll see the disbelief in their hearts. In verse 4, for no one has done anything in secret while he himself seeks to be made known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Imagine what it would be like to be the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He's also the older brother. Maybe you had a sibling that could do no wrong, right? And they really were the golden boy, the golden girl. It wasn't just because they were the oldest or the youngest, but if you got a C in a class, they got an A in a class. If you got a B in a class, they got an A plus in the class. If you averaged 15 points a game in basketball, they averaged 30 points a game in basketball. And you could just never seem to get out of being in their shadow. I mean, things like, well, Jesus did it probably didn't fly with Mary and Joseph because he was always perfect. He always had a good attitude. How are you doing today, Jesus? Great. How are you? Well, not so good after I talk to you, right? And so they grow up knowing there's something different about Jesus, but they don't believe in him. In fact, it's not until after the resurrection of Christ that these disbelievers become believers. James and Jude, we're going to be studying the book of James. It's what we're going into after Joshua. James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And it was the resurrection that brought them to a place of faith. And that's the case with skeptics many times. They can't get away from the fact that Christ predicted his own death and then fulfilled his word by rising from the dead. How did this feel for Jesus, though? His own brothers, his half-brothers, those that he grew up with, didn't believe in him. And in fact, they're kind of coming to him and say, hey, why don't you go to this feast and prove yourself? Hey, if you're really the Christ, why don't you just go down and do these miracles openly and to think about the rejection that Christ went through. Maybe you're experiencing some rejection in some aspect of your life. Christ knows that rejection. He knows what you're going through and what you feel in that. In verse 6, then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Catch this, but your time is always ready. Jesus knew the exact day and hour and moment and way that he was going to die. 
the cross was always before him. And when he talks about his time, he's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection when the Father's glory would be revealed. But he says to his half-brothers here, you never know when you're going to die. And isn't that the case for us? We're not God. We don't know the number of days that God has given to us. We may live to be 90 years old. We may not live to be 90 years old. And it's kind of a mystery how some people do grow into their elderly years, and then others go home to be with the Lord seemingly well before their time would come up. And here at the church, it's not something that we talk about a lot, but there, there's a lot of memorials. There's a lot of funerals that take place in our church fellowship. It's also a ministry that we have to the community as we don't charge people for funerals. Isn't that a good thing, right? You, so people that this isn't their church home and they just need a pastor to be able to do a funeral, we open up our, our door to the community. So because of that, we have a lot of people that come to us and ask us to do funerals that may have no church background. And as pastors, we really see it as an opportunity to show the love of Jesus Christ and declare the gospel because it is a captive audience at a funeral, even if you don't want to be there. But I can say this with assurance is you never really know when you're going to step into eternity. And that was the message to his brothers is, are you ready for your time? And that's the key question for us is, if we went home to be with the Lord tonight, are we ready? Are we right with him? Are we in relationship with him? Are we believing his promises when it comes to salvation? And verse seven, the world cannot hate you because it, it hates me. Let me start again. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Jesus says things in such clarity, doesn't it? He says, the world can't hate you because it hates me because I expose that its deeds are evil. Have you noticed the world, not speaking of the cosmos, but a system, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life hates Jesus? Why is that? Why is there so much hatred for Jesus Christ? How come you can talk about Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Buddha or New Age or mysticism? You can be your own God. That's cool, you know? That's, there's no offense in you being your own God. Really, you're no threat, right? But as soon as you start to talk to people about Jesus Christ, there's a real resistance and hatred to Jesus because Jesus does threaten us because he's the light of the world. So he exposes the evil that we do by his perfection. When we come into his presence, when someone brings Jesus to our attention, once our evil deeds are exposed, we've got a couple options, don't we? That we can either turn to God in repentance, asking for forgiveness, or we harden our heart. We say, no, I'm going to stay in this place. And so Jesus speaks the truth there in verse 7. In verse 8, you do not go, you go up to this feast... I am not yet going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He says, thanks for the invitation, guys, but you go on ahead without me. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So his plan, the plan of the Father, was for Jesus to come to this feast, but to first come to the feast in private, to come in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And this is fascinating because there was nothing about Christ's physical appearance that it was like, whoa, there's Jesus, right? 
Isaiah 53, prophesying about Jesus, says there's nothing in his form that we should desire him. There was nothing physical about Jesus that attracted people to him. He wasn't a Tom Cruise type of character. There was a physical appearance. In fact, even when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers needed Christ to be identified. And you'd think about after all of his miracles, his teaching, going into the temple on two occasions and turning over the tables, that everybody would have a mental visual picture of what Jesus looked like. But that wasn't the case because his appearance is he just blended in with everybody. They didn't even know what he looked like. So here he is at this feast and they're trying to find him, but they can't find him because he looked so ordinary. In verse 12, and there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some things just don't change, huh? It's almost our spiritual gift as human beings is the gift of complaining. And so the whole feast, the talk is about Jesus, and they're, but they're complaining about him. Some said he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deserves the people, deceives the people. However, no one spoke up openly of him for fear of the Jews. No one could have an honest conversation about Jesus because they knew how the leaders felt about Jesus Christ. There's still a lot of controversy about Jesus, isn't there? Some people are like, oh, he's, he's good. He's a good man. He's, he's a prophet. Some like us, would, he's God. God in human flesh. Some, no, he's bad. He deceives you. He's here to rip you off and trick you. And so you can imagine all these conversations that are happening. Verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So this is where now he reveals himself it's halfway through the seven-day feast, and he begins to teach. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus didn't go through the formal theological schools, of which there were many. He didn't study under the rabbis. His earthly father, Joseph, was a carpenter, and he went through the school of carpentry. And he learned the scriptures and studying them and spending time with them. And now he speaks these scriptures out. And they're like, where did this guy come from? Where did this carpenter come from? You know, we kind of picture Jesus and sometimes we may not get the biblical accurate perspective of Christ. Here he is, his physical appearance is nothing drove people to him. His work life was very ordinary. There wasn't anything about his resume that caused people to go, wow. But when you heard him speak, he was very clearly speaking the words from the Father. You know, some think that, you know, you've got to go to a Bible college or a seminary in order to be able to learn the word well enough to be able to share it with other people and to make disciples. And I think that that is one of the things that can hinder the body of Christ as a whole. And there's nothing wrong with seminaries and there's nothing wrong with Bible colleges, but you can get into God's word for yourself. You can study it and you can read it verse by verse and line by line and chapter by chapter and book by book and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and he will. And what he shows you, then you can share with other people. And what I have found is some of the best training for preparing godly men and women is in the school of hard knocks called life. It's called the carpenter shop where you're there doing a task and doing it unto the Lord, something happens in your character that can't be developed in a school, that can't be developed in a seminary. And again, nothing wrong with those things, but God, many times he teaches us right where we're at and he'll raise somebody up as they're doing good in their everyday setting. We think about Elisha. 
Here Elisha was called to take Elijah's place. And where did they find Elisha? Not in the school of prophets, which there was, but he was working hard, plowing the field with two team of oxen. So he's got four oxen, and he's out there working hard in the Middle Eastern sun, and God saw a man who was faithful to work hard, and he said, that's who I want to be the next prophet and to take Elijah's place. So there's an encouragement here in the life of Christ. Maybe you feel like you're working a really mundane job. You're saying, how can God teach me in the midst of this mundane job? That's the best place for him to teach us. Here I am raising kids and I'm not getting any award for being a stay-at-home mom and wiping rears and feeding faces, right? That's where God is developing character and he's doing this great work as you're devoting yourself to, to your kids. So don't believe the lie that you've got to have a Bible college or a seminary degree in order to be used by God. If the Lord opens up doors to you to do that, praise the Lord. Go to those Bible colleges, go to those seminaries, and make sure it lines up with Scripture. Because there are some liberal uh, seminaries now that you spend time there and they'll convince you that the Word of God's not the Word of God. So you've got to be careful as you go. There's nothing wrong with it, but always allow the Word of God to be the authority. Jesus shares where he learned in verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but it's his who sent me. So doctrine is the teaching that comes from God. When you hear this word doctrine, what are people referring to? They're saying that this teaching, it's not a man's teaching, it's God's teaching. And what Jesus says is that his doctrine is not his, but it came from the Father. He's sharing what he received from the Father. Verse 17, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it comes from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Jesus is saying, if you're devoted your life to do the will of the Father, you're going to know that I am speaking from the Father. And this is a comfort. If your life is sold out to Jesus Christ and you're studying the scriptures, you can be able to determine whether something is from God or not. And that's important to know. So you're reading a book from the bookstore, you're listening to something on Christian radio, you're talking with some, some Christian friends, and you're able to take this claimed doctrine that's supposedly coming from God, and you can run it through Scripture for yourself. And you can see what Scripture says, and then be able to evaluate if it comes from the Lord or not. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. And isn't that possible? We can speak from ourselves, whether it's a pastor giving a sermon, or whether it's sharing advice with our friends or speaking to our kids, we can easily give our opinions and our ideas. We can speak from ourselves, and it's for our own glory. We're elevating our own wisdom if we're doing that. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. And that's Jesus. Jesus came to seek the will of the Father, the glory of the Father, and there's no unrighteousness in Jesus. Verse 19, did not Moses give you the law? Let, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now there's just some slap verses in the Bible. And Jesus just verbally slapped these boys right here. Let me read that to you again. Did not Moses give you the law? Let no, yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to, to kill me? Now you have to understand the audience. These are Pharisees. These are scribes. They had given their whole life to fulfill the law in minute detail. They even tithed 
on their herb gardens. So you're growing some rosemary, and they had to tithe some of the rosemary to the work of God. These guys were so confident that they were fulfilling the law of God. There was no doubt in their hearts and minds. And then here's Jesus saying, hey, you guys don't keep the law, and this is why. Because right now, you're seeking to kill me. And this is scary how much self-deception can be in our lives. Over here, they believe they're keeping the law, but over here, they're planning to kill Jesus. There's like this one part in the law that says, thou shalt not murder. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's kind of a big one, especially God's son, God in human flesh. But yet, they've deceived themselves. And we can do that so easy. Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And so we can convince ourselves, hey, I'm following God. I'm keeping his word. But over here, we've got this deviant plan of sin. And that's why we need to be honest before the word of God and let the word of God speak to us and not implant our own ideas upon God's word. Verse 20 is classic. The people answered and said, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. This is the classic denial and blame shifting. Oh no, who are you talking to? You're the one that's got the problem. You're demon possessed. That's always an easy way to deal with the conflict, right? Just start pointing the fingers at everybody else and going, no, 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 you're, you're the demon. You know, get behind me, Satan. So they just totally blame shift this away. In verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you marvel. Going back to the pool of Bethesda with the lame man who was healed on the Sabbath. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, that is, from Moses, not that, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. You go back to the Old Testament, and the Jewish boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. If the eighth day fell on the Sabbath day, guess what? The rabbi did circumcision on the eighth day. So he too worked on the Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath, but also the rabbi was doing circumcision on the Sabbath when it fell on the eighth day. In verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That's a little convicting, isn't it? So how many times do we go, I got this one all sewed up. I know exactly what God's heart is in this situation. But we've only judged on the outward appearance and we've never judged with righteous judgment. Now notice that God doesn't say not to judge. Now there is a verse in the Sermon on the Mount that God says, don't judge lest you be judged. And if you look at that closely, it's speaking about making a verdict on someone's salvation. You're pronouncing condemnation for eternity upon them. But throughout scripture, we are called to discern. God says you'll know them by their fruits. You've got to make a call on that, don't you? You've got to make a judgment on that. But that's different than condemning somebody to hell. And so God says, if you're going to make a judgment, if you're going to make a call, if you're going to make a discernment, then discern with righteous judgment, just not on appearance. And they had rejected Christ based on what they saw in appearance. They rejected him because he healed on the Sabbath and they never stopped to think about that in a deeper level. So we have to ask ourselves, am I making a righteous judgment or am I judging according to appearance?
verse 25, now some of them were from, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? They're saying, why aren't they standing up to Jesus? This is the middle of the feast. And we know there's this plot to kill Jesus, but Christ is the one who has authority. Don't you wish you could have been there in the feast? Just to see Christ stand and teach and all these guys are doing the behind the stage thing to try to kill Jesus. Christ has the authority to stay in that moment. In verse 27, however we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So they had this idea in their mind that they would not know where the Christ is from. But in Micah, we know this prophecy that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And that's actually going to be referred to later in the chapter. You guys doing okay? Still with me? We're about halfway, so this is a good, like, seven-inning stretch. Like, can kind of nudge your neighbor. Like, it's Wednesday night. Steve, thank you. Should we do some responsive reading on the right and the left? Verse 28, then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from and I have come and I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him for I am from him and he sent me. So Christ cries out with authority, says, you know where I'm from and you know who sent me. And you know the one who sent me has authority. In verse 30, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I would love a DVD of this. In Jerusalem, Feast of Tabernacles, it's packed out. And they're come to arrest Jesus. But it can't happen because it's not time for Christ to be arrested and for him to be crucified. When Jesus is arrested... They come to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says two words, I am the statement of deity. And what happened to those that were trying to arrest him? They fell flat on their back. It was a clear statement that no one was taking Christ's life from him, but he was willingly laying it down. Christ wasn't going to be arrested. He wasn't going to be crucified until his time had come. Verse 31, and many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So some come to faith through the signs and miracles that Jesus had done. In verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So this is take two. Let's go try to arrest him again. They hear this stirring in the crowd and some people are being impressed with Jesus and moved to faith and they want to silence Christ. In verse 33, then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a a little while longer and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me and where I come, you cannot come. And this is a sobering statement if you think about what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm only going to be here on the earth for just a little bit longer. I'm going to go be with my father, but you can't come because he knows the hearts of the Pharisees that they're so set in unbelief. They're so set upon killing him. He's saying, you guys are going to be lost for all of eternity. 
it's very important that we don't reject Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again because at some point we cross a line in God's heart and in God's mind and he confirms our decision. He says, okay, you don't want to believe in me. You don't want to receive me. So I'm going to accept that and I'm even going to use your hard heart for my glory. We see that with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart and eventually God confirmed that decision and hardened Pharaoh's heart. We don't know as people when that line is. Only God knows. So we continue to reach out and passionately pray. But each time someone rejects Jesus and rejects the invitation that Christ is giving, that's a scary thing. And maybe you've been rejecting the Lord. It's not too late. Tonight, open up your heart to him. Come to him in faith. Receive his grace and receive his forgiveness. Contrast verse 32 and verse 33 with John 14, when Jesus is speaking to disciples and believers. He's saying, I'm going to go to my father, but I'm going to come back and get you guys. And you're going to be with me forever in the place that I've prepared for you. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Far different from these guys' hearts of unbelief. There's 35. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? I mean, we're going to find this guy. How can he get out of our grasp? We've got him on GPS. We've got him locked in. Does he, extend, does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This shows the one place these religious leaders wouldn't go, and that's to the Gentiles. They're like, if the only place he could go on the earth that we can't find him is if he goes and teaches Gentiles because we really won't go hang out with those non-Jewish folks. So it really does show the prejudice that is inside of their hearts. We really get to the meat of this section of scripture in verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. On the last day of the feast, Jesus cries out and gets the attention of all. Imagine it in your mind, where the focus is upon Jesus, and he gives out this invitation. And a couple of centuries before Christ, there was a tradition that developed on the last day of the feast that the priests would go out and they would gather water from the pool of Siloam. They would bring it in through the water gate and then they would pour it out in the temple courtyard on the last day of the feast, remembering how God had provided water from the rock in the wilderness. So Jesus is watching this take place. They go get the water from the pool of Siloam. The priests come in with their tradition and pour out the water, celebrating God's provision in the past, and Jesus stands up and he says, I'm living water right now. The Father in the Old Testament, he provided living water for you, but I'm here to provide water in this moment, not physically, but spiritually. And think about the invitation that's given. First, there's thirst. And we have to recognize our need for living water. If anybody thirsts, And tonight, have we gotten to the place where we're just not satisfied with the wells of this world? Where we go, you know what? No amount of money is going to do it. No amount of relationship, as sweet as they are, is going to do it and fulfill this empty place in my heart. 
No possession is going to do it. You know, you get all excited about some new computer or iPhone or get all geeked out about a car or a new home or all those kind of things and then you drop it and you break it and the stupid screen's broken and then you're like, man, this is not living water. I thought I thirsted for this thing. Have you... Have you noticed with the Apple products, they really do let you know that there is a bite out of the apple. It's right there in the logo. Haven't you ever wondered about that? It takes you back to the Garden of Eden a little bit, the forbidden fruit and all those things. But we just have our pursuits, don't we? And we're like, when am I going to get this? And I do enjoy Apple products, I'm not going to lie. But the, when am I going to get this? And realize that I'm thirsting for something more that I was created for a relationship with God. And that's the first thing that Jesus says here. He's saying, you know what? If you're thirsty, are you thirsty tonight? Do you long for more? That's a great place to start. And then there's this invitation, the source, let him come to me. Let him come to me. It's only Jesus that can provide this living water for us, this refreshment that comes to us over and over. And then there's drink. We have to receive. We come to Jesus, we take the invitation, but then we've got to drink. And there's an old saying that you can lead a horse to the well, but you can't make him drink, right? And this is so true with Jesus Christ. As we can hear and know this information tonight and hear the words of Christ, that if you're thirsty, if the wells of this world just aren't doing it for you, then come to Jesus, but then we've got to come and receive. We've got to come and drink. We've got to come and allow him to satisfy the emptiness in our heart. And then we notice as we go on here that Jesus says that he's speaking of the spirit. He says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive from the Holy Spirit was not yet given. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus provides the living water, but the living water is the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit's not yet been given because I'm not yet glorified. And this is the tremendous gift of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the believer, for those that believe in Jesus as we receive the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, God inside of us, is that source of living water. So the way that we drink is through faith. Let me say that again. The way that we drink is through faith. I think we all know tonight that Jesus is the source of the living water, but even as believers, a lot of times we're not experiencing it. So how do we experience the living water? We come to Jesus and then in faith ask that he would fill our thirsty souls and say, Jesus, you promised this. So I'm asking that you would fill my heart and life with living water, which is the Holy Spirit. And did you notice in there, there's this word called overflowing? Now, I want to be an overflowing Christian with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit's just like gushing out and there's this splash effect that's happening on other believers and they're getting encouraged and unbelievers are getting the witness of Jesus Christ. You ever been to SeaWorld and the shows that they have there with the killer whales and there's like the splash zone, right? Where it just like comes out on you and you kind of know it and you're like, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to enjoy the splash zone that that takes place or go to a water park and there's these rides and you know if you're standing there, you're going to get splashed. And we want that as believers. 
we want to be the killer whale in a sense and just get out the love of God and be Shamu. Just go for it, right? But I was looking in my, my car today and I saw my coffee cup. And in the bottom of my coffee cup is my leftover coffee from a couple of days ago, right? And it is not overflowing. It's gross. It's crusty. It, it needs to be washed. It needs to be filled. And it needs to then possibly overflow. And a lot of times as Christians, instead of overflowing, we're just dry and crusty, you know? And the only thing that's splashing out and splashing over to other people is all of our complaints and disappointments and we're discontent and here's this and that's what we're sharing with the people around us and we go, oh Lord, forgive me. Where did I miss this? Where have I, where have I gone wrong? And God, I want you to fill me and I want you to then overflow to others. I don't live here enough and I don't fully understand it but I don't want anybody to miss this, especially if this is your home church, is you can't live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. And maybe there's something inside of you that's been afraid of the Holy Spirit because we don't understand it. We go, I know I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, but I don't, I don't know what it means to walk in the, in the Holy Spirit. We can't flow out love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness apart from the Holy Spirit. This may disillusion you, but those things do not come naturally to your pastor. You know, it's all the fleshly things that come very natural to me. And the only way that can happen is if I realize that the wells of this world, they're never going to satisfy. And I come to Jesus and I ask that God would fill me with the Holy Spirit to overflowing that the Holy Spirit then just gets to pour out on people's lives. And so we're not the source of this. I'm not the living water. You're not the living water. Wednesday night Bible study is not the living water. We're learning about the living water. Men's study is not the living water. Women's study is not the living water. Small groups isn't the living water. Awana is not the living water for our kids over there. It's a tool but Jesus is the living water. The Holy Spirit is the living water. And it says each of us come to Jesus, press into Jesus, drink of Jesus. Our kids drink of Jesus, drink of the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit begins to, to work through. Those other things are tools that are pointing us in the right direction. So let's finish out this chapter in verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Because Christ lived in Galilee at this point in Capernaum, they just assumed that Christ was born in Galilee. In verse 42, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So you can see the confusion that's in the crowd. Some are saying, we don't know where he's from. Others are saying, we know he's from Galilee, and the Bible says that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, from the seed of David. Newsflash, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Didn't stay there very long, but that's where he was born, of the seed of David. He's from the descendant of David. He is the Messiah. They didn't do their homework. Some people make an assumption and reject Jesus Christ over false information. And that happens so much today, doesn't it? where people just assume they've got Christ all figured out and they dismiss him, but they don't have the truth about Jesus Christ. In verse 43, so there was a division among the people because of him. 
Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. So Christ brought this division, and they wanted to arrest him once again, but no one could because his time hadn't come. In verse 45, Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? So here's the, the boss man, the godfather, if you would. And he says, Hey, why haven't you brought Jesus Christ? Why haven't you arrested him? The response is classic. In verse 46, the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered and said, are you also deceived? The person that went to arrest Jesus became impressed with Jesus. And that's happened so many times through the history of the church. As people have made it their life mission to disprove Jesus Christ, they get into the facts and they become a believer. Josh McDowell, who's probably one of the greatest apologists of our day, sought out first to disprove Jesus Christ, and he couldn't do it, and he became a Christian, and now writes all of this amazing books pointing to the validity of Jesus Christ. So I think this is a great challenge for people. You've got people that hate Jesus. First say, do you really know who he is? Who, who do you think Jesus is? And would you spend a year of your life really examining the facts about Jesus Christ before you disprove him. And even if they go out to arrest Jesus, Jesus is powerful. And when they begin to get face-in-face encounter with Jesus Christ, many times they'll come to know the Lord. Jesus isn't afraid of someone who's hostile towards him. That's many times been the posture that people have had towards Christ, and they walk away like this guy. Can you imagine? I'm gonna arrest you. I'm on an assignment to arrest you. Okay, I've never heard anybody talk like this before in my life. This guy's blowing my mind. And you go back to the most powerful guy in the land, the chief priest, and you're saying, sorry, I couldn't arrest him because there's something really amazing about him. So we go on into verse 48. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. To me, this is faulty thinking that we should learn from. They say, hey, look, man, have you seen any of the Pharisees believe in Jesus? Now, just because people are the bigwigs and they haven't followed doesn't mean it's not truth. If your measure for truth is like, well, this person and this person and this person, well, well, they don't believe that. Well, that's not the evaluation for truth. If people took this for face value and go, well, the Pharisees don't believe, so I'm not going to believe, they would miss Jesus Christ, wouldn't they? So we've got to examine truth, and we've got to examine Jesus Christ for ourselves, not just because, well, this person with this reputation said this. And I hope we're building our theology and our doctrine and what we believe about God based on the scriptures, not based on what this group of bigwigs have said or not said. Now, sometimes the bigwigs are right. But other times, they just have a big wig. That's all they've got. So, in verse 50, Nicodemus, remember him, John 3, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They hadn't put Christ on trial. They hadn't brought witness against Christ. They answered and said to them, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And again, Jesus was from Bethlehem. And everyone went to his own house. And please read and study ahead next week for John 8, 
It's a wonderful section of scripture. And again, the backdrop is still the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes the chapters are divided right in the middle of a thought. And that's the case that we see here in John 7 and 8. In this chapter, people dismiss Jesus Christ because of prejudice and superficial evaluations, and they choose to be blind to the truth. And we don't want that in our lives. We don't want prejudice. We don't want superficial observations to keep us from the truth of Jesus Christ. And maybe you come tonight from this place of you haven't committed your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you spent your Wednesday night, that you took this hour and 15 minutes to examine Jesus. And I want to give you an opportunity tonight to do one of two things. Some of you are at the point where you're ready to commit your life to Jesus Christ. You're thirsty. And you realize the emptiness in your soul and God is convicting you of your sin and also convincing your heart and your mind that Jesus is God, that he died for you and rose again. And tonight, give your heart and life to Jesus and cry out, Jesus, save me. I can't save myself. I turn away from my sin. I believe you're God, that you died for me and rose again. And as we come to communion, find someone on the prayer team and let them know, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. Some of you aren't at that point tonight. And don't take too much time because you don't know how much time you have, but I'm going to give you a challenge, and that's this, is begin an in-depth study, an honest observation of who Jesus Christ is. Don't let Google make up your mind. Don't let Wikipedia make up your mind. Trust me, for all of eternity, that would be a foolish decision. I'm talking about examine what the scripture says, examine what the historical facts tell us about Jesus Christ, and after you know the information, then evaluate whether you're going to believe or disbelieve Jesus Christ and what he claimed to do. But don't you think all eternity is worth taking the time to examine it? Because if Jesus is right, if he's God and you reject him, then you're going to hell for all of eternity. So isn't it worth saying, you know what? I want to see what this is all about. Because also Jesus said, whoever believes will be saved and he'll grant to them eternal life. Also for us as believers tonight, can we honestly say that we're drinking of the living water of the Holy Spirit? I am confounded on how busy our lives are as Americans. We're just busy. We're running from place to place. And if we're honest, we battled it just being able to get here tonight, didn't we? And I'm so proud of you that you've set aside time to to seek the Lord. And we just bounce around like ping pong balls and we're trying to get our direction. And before we know it, we go, man, I'm all dried up. Well, great invitation. Jesus' word's true. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Anybody that thirsts, Come to Jesus and all that believe he will give living water to the point where we're overflowing through the Holy Spirit. Say, Lord, I'm crying out to you. I'm asking you that you would minister to my heart and allow me to drink of the Holy Spirit. I know in my life, God has a way of making sure all of the other wells don't work out so that I'll realize the only thing that can really satisfy is Jesus and to drink of him. And a great way, an opportunity is 
communion. And we want to make sure that we understand communion. Communion represents the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. And as we come, we're to come in the attitude of remembrance, thanking him for what he's done for us, and then coming to him and confessing sin. God, this is where I've fallen short this week. This, you know my heart. You know this is what's in my heart. Confess means to agree with God. I'm agreeing with God. And then we receive his grace and his forgiveness afresh. And as you lift the cup tonight in faith, say, God, would you fill my heart and my life with living water? Wouldn't it be so exciting if there was just something real and organic happening in our lives as a group of believers here at Rocky Mountain Calvary here on Wednesday night? If it just started to spread through our neighborhoods and through our community, we're like, people are like, what in the world's going on with you? And it, it wasn't about a church. It was about Jesus. And they're like, wow, I can tell you're drinking of living water. Like, I'm in the splash zone right now, and it's pretty incredible. And it's a move of the Holy Spirit in and through our lives. But we can't give something away that we're not experiencing. That's not the idea here. It's not, you know, I want to have this great impact. It's, I want more of Jesus. I want to know him. I want to be in the living water. And then the natural result, as we're in love with Jesus, is that just starts to happen without us even trying. It's just a result of being in love with Christ and allowing him to fill us. Let's pray and move into this time of worship.